Welcome everyone. Nice Yay, to be with you. Up. Yeah. So um, tonight I'll be talking, this is the second of three uh, talks on the seven factors of awakening. Um, we'll go ahead and start with our, with our sitting tonight. So go ahead and find your, your comfortable posture. I won't really do a guided meditation at all. Last, last time I invited people to, um, to notice, uh, if you feel like it, to notice Vedana. It's an aspect of, of mindfulness, of noticing what's here. And it's a great reminder. I really love this part of the Vipassana practice, noticing the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So if it feels of interest, you're welcome to do that. Or you can be with whatever, whatever practice you're currently doing that will feel supportive for you tonight. Really landing here. Feeling your seat, yourself sitting and your feet on the ground. Arriving here at the end of your, your day may have been a busy day and all that it took to get here, letting go of that. Taking a deep breath, moving it out. And really landing in this present moment. Breath can always be a good anchor to settle the mind. And coming back to the present, if you find that you've been lost in thoughts of the past or the future or other, other distractions. Giving yourself this time to settle and to not have to do anything except just be here. We'll ring the bell in about, uh, about 25 minutes. So this is my second of three talks on the seven factors of awakening. I did the first talk on mindfulness on, on an, as an overview on this topic and on the factor of mindfulness last month. And that is now posted on Dharma Seed. So if you want to listen to that, you're welcome to go and take, take a look at that under, if you look, find me as a teacher, you can see it posted there. And as a refresher, the seven factors of awakening are, are one, of the, one of the lists in Buddhism uh, and really um, point to sort of two ways of understanding these factors. Uh, 
They are understood as factors that we can cultivate that lead to awakening and that, that liberation from the sense of, of the self that causes a lot of the suffering that we really all of the suffering, the pains unavoidable of, of the human condition, that this extra suffering is really, really optional. And so the seven factors um, can be cultivated and are things that it's seen that we already have as faculties in our consciousness. It's just a matter of how developed and accessible they are to us. So they can be developed as cultivations for uh, greater freedom. And they also are descriptors of the awakened state. So that's the other way that they can be um, understood. And the seven factors are found in all of the Buddhist lineages. So this is something that's really understood across all of Buddhism. And um, it's another way of understanding them is that they um, they are kind of the antithesis of the hindrances, and they can offset the hindrances and defilements. And it's, it's kind of like, what are we feeding? Are we feeding the hindrances and defilements or are we feeding the seven factors? And if we feed the seven factors, then our life is going to have more, more freedom and um, contact with these deeper aspects of the human potential. So I talked last time then about mindfulness and, and that is the balancing factor that is really um, uh, essential for all of the factors. And mindfulness being not so much about Vipassana, but mindfulness as a factor of being present, which is really necessary for any real meditation. And that includes all the four categories of meditation in, in Buddhism, in Theravada Buddhism, and also in neuroscience. And just as a reminder, those categories are heart-based, focused attention like the Samatha practice, open monitoring like Vipassana, and self-transcending like Chitanupasana or Dzogchen. Being present is, is really the foundation of, of every legitimate uh, meditation practice and being able to attend to and, and um, be with whatever the object of the meditation is and also knowing when we have gone off of that and being able to come back and recognize that we have gone off. That's really what, um, what mindfulness is referring to. So this is just crucial for any kind of spiritual practice, being, being present, being in the present moment and being able to realize it when we've, when we've gone off of that. Tonight I'll talk about, there's, so there's two other kind of buckets of factors, three in each bucket and the two categories then of the remaining ones are the activating factors, which I'll be talking about tonight. And those are um, investigation, energy, and joy. And then next month, I'll talk about the calming factors. And those are serenity, concentration, and equanimity. So the, the activating factors that I'll be talking about tonight offset sluggishness in our practice. 
and um, the, the kind of, you know, slow, slowing down, being, you know, kind of not clear about what our, our object is. And also in life, we can see these same, um, the sluggishness leans more towards something like depression. And the, um, the calming factors are used for when we have agitation, which is more like anxiety. So the calming factors, um, the activating factors I'm talking about tonight can be used when in life we're feeling like maybe we're on the depressed end of the scale. These factors are, you know, a way to, um, to cultivate capacities in our consciousness that might offset that. And in, in some lineages of Buddhism and in, in um, like Chan Buddhism, for example, and in Tibetan Buddhism, they really divide the, the hindrances into these two categories of sluggishness and um, overactivation or agitation. And that is called, the sluggishness is called sinking mind and the overactivation is called rising mind. So we can also see the category of the activating factors as being antidotes to sinking mind where the mind is just kind of dropping off into a, a state of, um, you know, kind of unconsciousness or sleepiness, sluggishness, um, even kinds of delusion where we're just foggy and spaced out can all be part of uh, what these factors can, can offset. So I'll start then with investigation. And, um, and I, I really appreciate Gil Fronstel gave some really great talks on the seven factors. And one of the things I really liked is that he has a single word um, sort of encapsulation for each. So I'm, I'm um, borrowing those from him and, and tipping my hat to him. He's been a teacher of mine for a long time. So with, um, so with mindfulness, the one word is here. So we're being here. What's here right now? That's a great way to you know, remind ourselves to be mindful. I'm here. And so for investigation, the word is what? what? What's happening? What am I investigating? And, um, and really it, with investigation, we're being in contact with our direct experience. The Buddhist, the, the Buddhist word for what we've translated as investigation is um, Dhamma Vichaya. And that can mean being in touch with our, the truth of our immediate experience, or it could be the truth of deeper reality. So either of those are, you know, pointers to that word. When, you know, if we're in a deep, um, you know, if we're farther along in the path, it really points to being aware of more of a sense of um, ultimate reality. But you know, in our everyday practice, really being with what is actually present and arising is, is what's being pointed to here with investigation. And it doesn't have to be, you know, sometimes we can think of investigation as very 
very kind of sharp and, and penetrating and, and having kind of an edge to it. But we can also think of investigation as, as letting experience arise and come to us. So it can be done in a way that doesn't have striving as part of it. And I'll get to effort in a few minutes where that really becomes you know, a danger if we lean too far into the efforting. But investigation, it's really more like a sense of, hmm, I'm curious. I'm curious about my own experience. What's really happening here? Can I come to it with an openness? And, um, and really, you know, being in touch with the nuances of what's happening and the subtleties and, and not bringing a mental overlay of preconceived ideas to it, but really being, bringing that sense of, um, of not knowing and beginner's mind to everything that's arising, whether that's you know, on the cushion, in our practice. If our practice, you know, if we've been practicing a while or even for new people, there's a way practice can get kind of stale where we're, we're kind of just expecting the same old thing. And the reality is that each moment is bringing something new. And if we're open and curious, even when things are fairly neutral, we can notice the peace of that moment, you know? And so we're really, this is the spirit of what investigation is pointing to, that we're, we're distinguishing this, the nuances of that moment and not overlaying our prior judgments or um, ideas or, you know, the past or future expectations. Um, you know, that can be a problem too with meditation, where if we've had good experiences, which most of us have, then we're expecting that. And if that isn't happening, then we're thinking, well, why isn't today's meditation as good as yesterday's? Or, you know, we're on retreat and, and oh, I thought it was going to be like my last retreat. So all of that can really suppress our, this natural curiosity that we have. And um, even when things are you know, unpleasant, we can still be with those and find it kind of interesting. Like, for example, working with something like, um, like anger, you know, it cannot be that pleasant sometimes to be with. But if we really, instead of seeing it just as this concept of anger, I mean, it's good to note it, if that's your practice and Vipassana to note, or we can just notice it. But really, what is it? Well, maybe my my stomach's tight, or, you know, my, I feel a lot of heat, or, um, you know, I feel flushed, or, or like, I feel exploding, you know, or things like that can really start teasing apart something like anger, so that it's not so um, immovable. And when we really investigate, um, even difficult things, they can um, give us space to disidentify from them. And um, it's really like investigation also has to do with a certain kind of sensitivity to our own experience and attunement where um, we're, we're able to tune into the subtleties of what's happening. And like off the cushion, this could be, we can also be curious off the cushion, like you know, maybe if we had a conversation with someone and we keep running over it and over and over, it's like, why am I 
what's going on with that? Why am I running over that again and again? Well, maybe we're running over it if we really feel into it. It's like uh, something was off in me when I said that. That wasn't really that wasn't really accurate. I was I was kind of bending what I was saying in order to maybe please the other person, or maybe there was an uncomfortable truth I didn't run, really want to say. So I, I kind of, you know, that was a little off. Um, or maybe I, you know, was unskillful, and I, I didn't want to notice that I was unskillful. And now I can see I need to go clean that up. So this is the kind of attunement we can have that um, can help us get out of cycles of stuckness of, of ruminating and really be with the truth as it is. And um, when we're good at investigation, it really allows us to be curious about whatever's happening so that we're not, uh, we don't have to separate from the present moment in order to um, be curious, that we can be curious no matter what's happening. And there's, of course, other factors that allow us to be with difficult things as well, but that we're not gonna really notice what's happening if we're not interested and curious. And so, it's, you know, this it isn't about thinking our way in. It's really about like, if you imagine like an openness that is really allowing for what's coming in to be revealed on its own rather than an overlay. So in, this is really a key. Investigation is one of the keys of Vipassana. Vipassana is kind of, you know, the, the star of investigation where it's really about opening up our experience and being really close to things as they are um, and understanding them from different, different ways, like, you know, direct sensations, for example, or Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, the feeling tone that I mentioned at the beginning of the meditation. Um, there's, you know, there's so many different ways we can meet our experience and understand it. And these first three factors really uh, lean towards the Vipassana side, and especially the investigation. But there is a, an investigation aspect to Samatha also, which is a concentration and serenity meditation. It's not as active, it's more restful. So in that practice, we're with one object to the exclusion of everything else, for example, the breath. So we're not really investigating at the same level of Vipassana, but the interest and the curiosity is still there, that we're still interested in our experience, but because it's a serenity practice, it's, it's in a, a more a kind of a more settled, more receptive way than what we might do in Vipassana. So when we're with our experience in this way, investigating, this lets us be um, have more wisdom and clarity about our actions. And that really leads to a little bit to the next factor. But um, when we see clearly, we can um, know more. And that can give us more of a sense of how to, how to act if, if it's something, especially off the cushion. If we're not really 
seeing what's there, we may take actions that aren't really appropriate to the situation. You know, we can uh, we can re be reactive or overlay the past maybe onto things where it's it's not the same or project onto other people in ways that aren't really what's happening right now. So, um, so this investigation really allows us to bring a lot more wisdom to acting uh, if that's needed in the situation. So that's, that's the second factor. Um, and, and with the awakened state, really investigation is something that is arising naturally from the openness. So, you know, I've mostly talked about cultivating that, but in the awakened state, it's really as if experiences arising on its own. And there's a natural open curiosity to the flow of experience. I mean, it's really showing up fully without resistance to what's happening. But being interested, being interested, it's, it's like there's a natural, like, wow, this is a human experience. And look at all the stuff that's arising. You know, there can be a real uh, awe in a way of the flow of phenomenon. So the next factor then is effort. And um, this could be thought of as wise effort, even heroic effort. Sometimes it's virya is the word in Pali. And sometimes people translate that as energy. Um, but I'll, I'll mainly talk about effort. I'll touch on, on energy. Um, now effort, uh, like with investigation, there can be a way of really coming at it like in a real sharp way, which isn't really what's being pointed to so much. Uh, but effort is more, it's not so much striving or pushing or, you know, like there can be, when we hear the word effort, a sense of striving that can be kind of um, uh, egoic in a way. And this is more of um, allowing our natural interest that's part of the investigation to engage us. So now when we're, you know, we're investigating things, it's almost like our natural interest in what's arising causes an energy to come up. Like if you've ever seen kids, you know, they have this so much. They're so like everything in the world, you know, every, they want to put everything in their mouth or, you know, um, things like that. I mean, doesn't it's, that's a little scary sometimes how much energy they have to investigate everything, but that's the spirit of it. It's like, wow, what's this, you know? And so when we're following that natural energy, we want to be engaged and it can almost be like play. So I put it forth as it's more the kind of engagement we have when we're really excited about doing something like a kid would be. Like when you see them, like a kid sees something, they just run over there if they're interested. You know, they can't get there fast enough. So that's the kind of energy. It's like when there's a genuine interest in our experience or in life or in, you know, whatever it is that is, um, is happening, uh, we, we want to be engaged and follow that. So, so that's how the energy can happen without, it's, it's not like a push from the ego, it's more of a sense of really being curious and um, 
and interested in the flow of experience and what's happening in our lives. And when that happens, when we really are curious and interested in the energies behind it, as we practice more and you know, really live more from the Dharma, we can start seeing what is really helpful and not helpful in our life. And this is where the wisdom starts coming in. So with clarity, we can really um, start feeling into what is wise for us and what isn't, both in our meditation and in our life off the cushion. So, you know, if the mind is really stressed and jumbled and, and we're lost in the past and, and the future and, you know, in hindrances and reactive, it's really hard to see what's skillful. I mean, you know, we're really not present for what's what's happening and feeling into not only what's happening, but the effect on us. And so having um, wise effort with the interest really allows us to um, notice where it's skillful to be placing our attention. So there can be more of a sense of um, skillfulness of skillfulness to like one thing that can be skillful is noticing the pleasant. Like if we're a person who tends to lean towards the unpleasant, maybe it's good for us to notice the pleasant more so that we don't get stuck in habits of mind that tend towards negativity. Or if we're a person who is always avoiding difficulties, then maybe we wanna notice the things that are difficult and be able to actually be present to that. Or if we're somebody, you know, if we notice that we tend to entertain ourselves, like in our practice, we tend towards fantasy or, or going into the future. Um, and we can't be present when things are neutral. You know, so I'm again going back to Vedana, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Um, with wise effort, we can notice how to work with ourselves with more skillfulness. And the Vedana goes to the three defilement patterns. So just to match those up, pleasant, if we get, if we're overly on the pleasant side and get attached there, that is the, um, the defilement of desire. If we're overly reliant on Noticing the unpleasant, that's aversion or ill will. And if we're overly reliant or resistant to, you know, to the neutral, that is delusion. So this is where as we start noticing more in our practice and we can see our own patterning more clearly, we can be more skillful. For example, say we're somebody who's, who's really has a lot of aversion, little things bother us or like we go on retreat, every retreat we go on, no matter who we're sitting by or what the conditions are, something bugs us a lot, you know? And, and what's the common equation? we're there, we're there. That's the common equation, you know, or we're the person who every sitting right before the lunch meal, 
you know, half an hour before the lunch meal, we start going, has the bell rung yet? Why isn't the bell rung yet? You know, and all we can do is start thinking about lunch and the smell of that, you know, those cookies or whatever. So, you know, these are just examples. But it, once we start knowing ourselves more, we can really start applying skillfulness so that we, um, you know, that person who maybe is aversive quite a lot can can offset some of this with the pleasant and start having there be more, more of a sense of balance and equanimity in their practice. Or the person who needs entertainment all the time can start really appreciating the, um, the neutral and how peaceful neutral is when nothing's really happening. Is it okay to just let neutral be, be there? So, so effort, the word is this. So this, this is what I'm going to pay attention to. This, my effort's going to be wise. And if I'm lost in, in hindrances and defilements, I'm not going to just let myself stay there. I'm going to, this, I'm going to pay attention to the object of my meditation. I'm going to come back to that object. So this is where the attention goes. And we have more of a sense of capacity to place the effort wisely and not to have effort just going into spinning around and, and um, getting lost in the personality, but to really um, gain greater and greater wisdom in how to apply our effort with skill and with discernment. Now, energy is also part of uh, part of this, and it kind of is a bridge to the next factor. Energy um, can can be part of virya. And one of the things that can happen as a person is really practicing more more deeply or on retreat, for example, is that a lot of the energy that goes into our compulsive thinking of just, you know, the brain uses like 80% of the body's energy. It's a huge percentage. And if we're lost in thoughts that are ruminating, that are, you know, they say we have between 35,000 and 60,000 thoughts a day as a modern person, while indigenous people that they've studied have like 800 thoughts a day. So, you know, we're having way more than we actually need to get through the day. And that's one of the things that, you know, from the awakened perspective, there just isn't as much ruminating. So when we're on retreat, maybe some of you have noticed this, that um, when the, the hindrances start subsiding, there's a, there could be a lot of energy in the body. And it's because we're not burning off so much energy with all that ruminating and thinking that isn't actually helping. It's not really solving whatever it is that we're thinking about. It's just spinning. So um, this is something that can happen where the energy can start being more available and it can really lead to a, a sense of, of blissfulness or um, or joy in the practice and, and become pleasurable. And so that leads us then on to the next factor, which is joy. And um, so as the hindrances start reducing and um, the word for hindrances is Navarana. 
And it actually means covering, which to me, the word covering is like a veil. It's a veil. The hindrances are a veil over our deeper nature. So they're really veiling the seven factors of awakening. They're veiling these parts of our deeper nature. And as those start calming or becoming less, we start having um, more contact with these seven factors of awakening with, with our deeper nature that's free. And, and as a result, more joy can arise both in our, our practice on the cushion, as well as in life, in our life off the cushion. So this factor of joy is um, PT. That's the name of it in Pali, PT. And, um, and so Pete, there's two kinds of joy that are um, talked about in Buddhism with relation to this word. There's this energy that gets released in the body that I was talking about. And that's um, called like referred to as suffusing joy. And we can really feel that. I mean, it's something that like when people are doing concentration practice, I just got back from a six day teeching a six day retreat in person. And in August, I taught a two week in person. I can tell you a lot of people had this suffusing joy happening. You know, I, I mean, I give a whole talk on this in my two week retreat. So it's, it's something that, that can really be felt. And it's, it's kind of, um, rewarding to be able to experience something like that that's so like palpable and it can happen in vipassana as well as samatha but i think it tends to happen a little more in samatha so that's one kind of joy um, that's noted in buddhism the second kind is a contentment for actually being here for our experience for really showing up and for showing up even when things are difficult and, you know, it's, it's one of the things I really love about the spiritual path, especially as people get deeper into it, is that it can be really satisfying to be with something hard. You know, I spend like today, I had sessions with a bunch of people three days a week. I have sessions all day with people all over the world. And a lot of them are being with hard things. And it's hard to be with, you know, especially things in our life that are hard. I mean, the world has a lot of hard things now. But when we're really showing up and we feel a certain kind of capacity to be with those things and to, to maybe digest them and have them be um, met, we can meet them. There's something really satisfying about that, even if it's not pleasant. So this is really what the second kind of joy is about. And so Gil's word for this factor is yes. And I really love that word because it's a yes to everything. It's a yes to the suffusing joy where you feel kind of rapturous and blissful and your practice is like, woo, this is really fun now. You know, there's blit, there can be really blissful times in practice. Of course, we're going to say yes to that. What about the hard times? What about the things when we're just slogging through the hindrances in our practice? You know, can we really show up for that and go, you know what? I know that every time I come back to my meditation, when I've been lost in thinking and I come back, that I'm strengthening these factors. I'm strengthening the, 
we'll get to the factors like concentration and such later. I'm strengthening concentration. I'm strengthening the serenity, the ability to be equanimous. I'm learning to investigate no matter what the content is. So we're really developing um, the ability to say yes and not close down to our experience, to what's happening. So, um, so, you know, just coming back to how these then progress in mindfulness, you know, we have to be here first. We have to be here for our experience to be present for either the meditation or for our life as it's unfolding and not, you know, go unconscious or distract ourselves, being really being here. And then we get interested in it. So what, what's happening? What's happening in this meditation or what's happening in my life? What's really going on in this situation? You know, um, and, and making distinctions between things so that it's not just this sort of mushy overlay or, or conceptualization, but we're really in touch with what's going on in our experience. That's the investigation. What, what's happening? And then effort. This, this is what I'm going to put effort into. This is what I'm going to pay attention to. And one of the things I really love as a way to, you know, think about effort and really all of practice is what am I feeding? Jack Cornfield talks about, um, about this. I think it's, believe it's a Native American story where they talk about the wolf that you feed. You know, if you have a bunch of wolf puppies, and you watch the, the parents, you know, feeding the puppies, or you can say bird feeders, you know, you can see that with the baby birds and the parents feeding them. That puppy or that baby bird that gets fed more, that's going to be the bigger animal. You know, that one is going to grow up to be bigger and stronger. And if we're feeding the hindrances and defilements all the time, that's what's going to grow. So, if we're feeding the seven factors of awakening and our, you know, the deeper aspects of what we are, that's what's going to grow. So this is part of what effort is doing is it's, it's showing what we're feeding. Are we putting effort into the right things that are actually going to bring us more freedom? Or are we, you know, allowing sort of a either a not paying attention, which comes back to the mindfulness, or sometimes it can feel kind of good to be in the hindrances and defilements. Like, you know, I'll work with people sometimes like aversion, who love, who, anger doesn't feel good. We usually think, well, that doesn't feel good. Why would I want to be there? Well, there's a self-righteousness that kind of can feel good. You know, if we really admit it, it feels kind of good to be self-righteous. If you, if you really go in and investigate it, it doesn't. But there is a way we can really lean into that. And um, if we're really close to ourselves, though, we can feel that there's an edge of it that really feels kind of um, harmful to ourselves. So that's where really looking at effort and what are we present for, you know, is it wise? And then that then can lead to the joy of saying yes to our experience, saying yes to whatever is there, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, allowing that natural curiosity to bring um, 
to bring wonder and joy to the human experience that we're having. You know, whether that's something really like a really special big experience or whether that's just an everyday thing, like, you know, being at the grocery store. Sometimes, you know, there can be, I've had this happen and maybe, maybe you all have too, where you're doing something really ordinary and yet there's just a joy that's sort of uncaused. That's just, it's just the joy of really being present in your life. And that's, that's what this joy is pointing to. Um, so, you know, in our meditation, this can be as simple as just sitting there being with our breath and there's nothing special happening, but there's a sense of like, yes, yes, this is, there's a joy and just the simple act of being present for the breath right now. There doesn't need to be more that's happening for me to be in touch with this factor of my consciousness that I'm here and this is what's happening. And that in itself is satisfying. So this is really the, you know, it's a capacity for well-being that we can, um, we can have on and off the cushion in our lives. And, um, and a lot of it comes down to, to what we're feeding. What are we feeding in our practice in our life? Are we feeding our, you know, the contracted places or are we feeding these factors that can really ultimately lead to, um, to a, a level of liberation that's, that's profound. That is really what, what Buddhism is, you know, is pointing us toward this possibility. So I'll stop there and see if there are any questions or comments. And you can, yeah, Stephen. Hi, Tina. Thank you for that. Hi. That was just sure. great. Um, so a couple of things, I, you know, um, I just want to make sure I have this when, when, you know, you talk or they talk in Buddhism about awakening or liberation, we're talking about a state of being devoid of greed, aversion, and delusion. Is that what that means? Well, in Theravadan Buddhism, there are four stages of awakening. So it's not until the end of the fourth stage where one is devoid of all of that. The first stage, one isn't devoid of it. It's been reduced. I see. So yeah, what really, you know, there, there are different things that distinguish the first stage, but really what happens is there's an identity shift to where we never really believed that we are the, the me. And again, it's, it's called personality view. So we don't believe in personality view anymore, but there's, we still have the defilements. They're reduced, but they're not gone. So so there's four stages and it's at the final stage. I, I use the word enlightenment for that when that's completely gone. So, you know, different, the words aren't always used consistently by, yeah. you know, by individuals and even across traditions, but that's in Theravada Buddhism. That's how it's talked about. That's helpful. And is that yeah. what you mean when you say thinning of the me? The, yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the thinning of the me. I mean, there's a thinning of the me before awakening that, you know, can allow for that possibility because there has to be really a lot of, a lot less identification with the personality to, you know, lead up to the possibility of awakening. And that's, that's what all the practices are designed for. But, you know, even without awakening, there's so much more freedom and so much less suffering. Right. 
you yeah. know, it's it's all good. But the, with awakening, there's a level of freedom that's that's kind of distinctive. Well, that's, yeah, that's helpful. So as a corollary to that, so would in Buddhism or would the Buddha say that the, the seven factors need to be balanced or does one take a look at their life and say, oh, like for me, I would really need more joy in my life. But, you know, investigation's okay. I mean, what, how do you work? Yeah, yeah. Well, you could definitely look at certain factors that you might want to cultivate that you think are maybe not as well developed. That's perfectly valid. Yeah. Or if if you find that there's, you know, your practice is lacking, you know, that that one, like a lot of people, I remember one of my, one of my teachers, um, when I was young, who, you know, has been a teacher pretty much forever always said, you know, that he felt like I had a lot of natural joy in my practice. And I never realized that that was unusual, you know, but it, it is without that, it can become really heavy and a lot of drudgery. And, you know, so I, if you think, if you feel drawn to um, cultivating joy, I can absolutely encourage that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that is a great way to look at the seven factors would be to, you know, really go, well, I'm going to see if I can d- d- enhance that one. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You're yeah. welcome. Other questions or comments? Hi, Karen. Hi, Tina. Hi. Good to see you. And Good to see you. Um, I always like it the way whenever you teach whatever you are, whether it's some, the Samatha practice or uh, the seven factors of awakening, the way you tie it in to our experience, both on the cushion and especially in daily life with our uh, personality patterning. Is that what, how you uh-huh. say it? Uh-huh. Yeah. And I did have an experience a couple of days ago, I think, with the, okay, so I was mindful enough to notice that I was very reactive. I, I noticed that it didn't feel good. I even noticed in my body, I was kind of over, uh, off balance, because I was way more reactive than I normally am. And it was for a relatively small thing but I think it was the and you mentioned the self-righteousness that came in that you know when I tried to investigate it I knew I knew that uh, something was going on that didn't feel good at all and that I wanted to change but that self-righteousness kept kind of kept the mind ruminating that almost that day and then even the next morning it was the first thing that came up when I thought about it and then when I responded to the person that I had been I hadn't been as reactive with that person as I actually had been in myself but what I said was something or what I texted was normally and I knew when I texted I should await it but it was a little little more than I normally would have and when they texted back, then I went to something else you said where you don't really respond in a gener- genuine way. I just kind of wanted to end it. So I just thanked the person 
and said they were right. And But it was definitely, like, at least for me, a way to separate from my experience, like you mm-hmm. were Yeah, yeah. Well, I really appreciate your authenticity and seeing all that and sharing it, you know, so which tells me that you're with your experience. Well, it was miserable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not fun. And you might not be feeling the joy quite yet, you know, about it. But but you are with you. There's an authenticity in what you're saying. And I really appreciate that you can see that and be with it. You know, we're not we're not always going to be as skillful as we want. And this is where having compassion for ourselves and the fact that we're still working on ourselves, you know, up until the fourth stage of awakening, there's still material. So, you know, we might as well just admit it and work with it, you know, because that's when we can really be in touch with something deeper. So this is where, you know, feeling, um, you know, this is where using something like Vipassana with the investigating, gosh, I wonder what is it that really triggered me there? without judging yourself, with a lot of compassion, with the openness, and just to be curious and maybe feel into, okay, where do I feel the self-righteousness? You know, is it in my heart? Is it, you know, uh, do I want to judge the person from my head? And, you know, there may be memories of your own conditioning of what how that has served you and how that got there. You know, I'm bringing in a little bit of the psychological here, but you know, what, how that pattern served you at at times of your life and then to have some compassion for why that pattern is there. It's basically, you know, a defense mechanism and we all have them. That's one of the things that is what the ego is made up of or a self-image, like they shouldn't have done that to me or, you know, whatever. Um, and, uh, and then you can understand a little bit more about yourself and have some psychological insights into that, that can help you feel some compassion for yourself and maybe be able to digest part of that pattern in a way that, um, it can soften, you know, so it's not really, it's not really about like forcing yourself to go back to the person and behave a certain way. Really the the practice is more about ourselves and having our own um, wisdom open up and the personality be digested and relaxed in such a way that it's a natural response that You know, maybe, you know, you did what felt right with that person, but maybe in a month or, you know, a week or something, or the next time you see that person, you'll feel like saying, you know, I was a little bit, I wasn't really as authentic as I wanted to be in that text. I got a little triggered and here's what happened. And I'm sorry if it was off-putting, you know, or, or whatever, maybe you don't ever say anything, but there's a way that, um, it's when we are at peace within ourselves about something, we can come back to a person from a different place. And then 
we're you're not in that place of feeling self-righteous or judgmental or maybe you have to have a difficult conversation with something somebody about something they're doing that you want to ask them to not do anymore you know sometimes that is skillful that is the authentic courageous thing to do and we can do that without an edge too it's not about being a doormat you know, so I don't know what the context was, but those are, you know, those are both possibilities that can both be done very skillfully and authentically when we're, when we're not triggered anymore. So I really like the way that you were able to feel it and not act from it right away. I mean, you did do a little bit, but that's, that's part of the skillful means is that we can feel what's there and we don't have to act outwardly on it and feeling it and letting it work within ourselves. Everything arises and passes, you know, so that emotion is going to arise and pass. And if we feel into and investigate some of the psych psychological material behind it, we can, this is part of digesting our, our personality material. Mm. Yeah, so that, you know, this is, um, and uh, what we're, thank you for the question. And I'll just also point to several months ago, I did a series on embodiment. And I did a talk on working with psychological material. And I got, I sent it out on my email list. And I got a lot of positive feedback on that. So that's also on Dharma Seed, if anyone's interested, um, which gets into some of what, you know, Karen and I were talking about. And is that the title, Working with Psychological Yeah, material? it's embodiment hyphen working with psychological material. It's, you know, it's not very old. It, it was from earlier this year. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you're you. welcome. And then there's one in the chat, what is rising mind? So rising mind is um, when we're, our mind is, is um, really agitated and we're just thinking, thinking, thinking. So it's kind of the opposite of sinking mind. It's probably the most common thing is rising mind. And next month I will be talking about the calming factors that can be used to um, offset rising mind. So thank you for your, um, for your attention and for being here. It's lovely to be with you all. And I will look forward to seeing you again. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.